Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this awesome interview with Joanne Lemelino, the associate and second trumpet player with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, I wanted to take just a quick second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. As musicians, it's simply a fact that we're going to be spending a significant portion of our lives with our instruments. Unfortunately, many of us can feel stuck with a bad fit, fighting to get the sound we want to come out of our instrument. If you and your instrument aren't getting along right now, Houghton Horns can help. They have an incredible selection of brass instrument makers in stock, including Adams, Bach & Conselmer, Eastman & Shires, Engelbert Schmid, Paxman, Tyne, Yamaha, and more. They even have vintage and consignment instruments available as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. So whether you're a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to that's not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm super excited to be here with Joanne Lamalino, who is the associate slash second trumpet with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. She's also been pursuing a Kundalini certification, Kundalini Yoga certification. She's going to talk a lot about that, which I'm excited to hear her perspective. Um, I've read a little bit in blogs that she's done and some of her Facebook and social media posting, but I think it'll be just really nice to get a, a clear picture of what that has provided for her. She's also uh, a client of mine that's been working um, through some of just the practice things that I've been doing. And so maybe we'll get her perspective on that, um, some of how she views practice differently and what that's like, if that's something she's interested in talking about. But before we get there and we do all that, first of all, thank you, Joanne, for being willing to join me on this Thursday afternoon and we can chat for a little bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, let's just start with your backstory. Let's start with uh, maybe your backstory in music and, and how yoga got intertwined and at what point and... Uh, we'll just figure it out from there. Okay. Well, um, like most kids, I started in, you know, elementary school band in fourth grade. And, um, you know, I was always pretty good, took private lessons. Um, when I was in high school, I had the good fortune to take private lessons with Ed Troidel um, of trumpet lore. You know, he taught Phil Smith and Lou Soloff and taught at Juilliard for like 50 years. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I just knew that the best kid in my high school studied with him, and I just started going to his house for lessons. And um, he was very much into the mind, mind over matter. And, you know, he'd talk about that and, you know, how to use energy and the energy of your mind. And I didn't really get it in high school. I mean, I got better and I kind of was able to do some visualizations while I played, but 
you know, it was definitely a lot over my head. Um, when I went to college, I ended up doing my undergrad at Boston University. Um, I took a Hatha yoga class for one credit, much to my parents' chagrin, <laughs> when they saw my, uh, you know, your, your uh, I'm going to call it a report card, but, you know, your yeah. report card at the end of the semester. Um, and the class was really fun. I really liked it. That was my first yoga thing that I did. Um, one thing that struck me about it was on Friday mornings when I went to the yoga class, I felt great the whole rest of the day, but I couldn't figure out how to make that work on a daily basis. Like I didn't know, it just seemed like there was not much structure for me to figure that out. Um, so after the Hatha yoga, a friend of mine and I, we took a meditation class, um, out of the same college at BU. And that was very interesting because it was run by a Buddhist nun. And you would like sit down. You were supposed to buy like a $50 pillow. And me and my friend <laughs> were like, we're so not buying $50 pillows. And we would just roll up our coats and we would sit on our coats in the class. And every week we would go on a Thursday morning and we would meditate. I put that in quotes because it was pretty loose, like I think what me and my friend did, because we would kind of laugh a little bit about what was going on. And then we would tell all of our friends, like from music history, because we'd meet them for breakfast after and tell them about the craziness of the class and things that were uh, explored. But there was stuff from it that I thought was really great. And you know, I still, a lot probably went over my head. I also, um, I dabbled, I took Tai Chi for a little while until I realized it was going to ruin my practicing on Wednesdays and Fridays for trumpet. And I was like, nah, it's like cutting way too much into practice life. So I cut, I dropped the class, but it was very nice. I did like it. So I've always liked things that were kind of mindful um, now fast forward, I did my master's degree at Manhattan School of Music, um, and I struggled mightily with performance anxiety while I was at Manhattan School. Um, looking back on it, I always actually struggled a little bit with performance anxiety. I was always like the type of kid that could, you know, audition for this honor band and come in first, but then two months later, there'd be another one for a different honor band and like, I wouldn't even make it or something, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. I was I was always very hit or miss um, as a kid with performance. Concerts, not so much. I was like, okay. Um, but at Manhattan School, it like really came to a head. Um, I think because I was approaching, I knowing I was approaching the end of school and approaching the end of the safety net of being at school, that was probably a subconscious thing. Um, my teacher at the time when I first started there was uh, Bob Sullivan, who now plays in Cincinnati Symphony. And he was basically like my first year, he was like, you got to go take auditions. And I was like, I can't go take auditions. I can't like perfectly craft a low C and do this and do that. And I was always, I was really like in my mind about um, fundamentals and, and things like that. But I kind of let them push me off the high dive and I just, I went and I started taking auditions. Um, I was definitely not mentally ready, and I think that it really added a lot of stress onto my performing in general at that time. 
Um, then a little later on, I started studying with uh, Vince Panzarella because we had that option at Manhattan School. And a lot of us would actually swap lessons within our two studios, and it was super cool. So I ended up switching to Vince Penzarella, and he was a very mindful teacher and um, just kind of getting you out of your own way. At least he did for me, and it was like a it was extremely helpful for me. Um, he would say things like, uh, "You can't be a performer and a critic at the same time." Um, so it it really helped you kind of. For me, it helped me kind of stay in the present to play. One thing he used to tell me to do was to record myself and then, you know, for excerpts, if I was getting ready for an audition and he would, he would bluntly say, uh, you know, get a sheet of paper, put higher, no higher, and put a line down the middle of the page. And on each excerpt that you would hire, write it down. Each one that you wouldn't hire, write it down. And, uh, you know, I would listen to myself play on my on my uh, mini disc player and I'd be like, I wouldn't hire myself. What am I doing? But I was doing this like on a daily basis for a while. So you start giving yourself so much negative input and never enough positive input. It starts to really wear on you. Like I'd be I'd be the I'd be the student that, you know, I'd be playing principal on like uh Prokofiev of Romeo and Juliet. I remember this distinctly. I had to play it in like a like an all brass rep class. And I was like nailing all the licks. I knew the piece really well. I had the score. It was like I was all over it. And then I remember getting to the class and it was like I could barely play. It yeah. was rough. Um, yeah. I mean, luckily, I didn't have any issues like that in like real performances where like I would destroy a concert or anything like that. But I knew that I had a problem. So, but I didn't necessarily know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do. So, um, after I was done with school, you know, now it's like, I, you know, I hadn't won a job while I was in school. I needed to start freelancing. I didn't really know exactly how to go about doing that. Um, I was doing badly every time I went to an audition because I really didn't know what I was doing. And I really couldn't listen to myself in a impartial way and figure out like, okay, maybe like the opening of pictures doesn't sound good. What do I need to do? It was almost like I was paralyzed. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even write down like, oh, the tapers of the notes or you know, it was like I couldn't pick apart the details in a way without being like, oh, this just sucks. I just, what am I doing? Why am I going to Richmond? Or why am I going to Kennedy Center? And like, you know, crazy stuff like that. So basically, I was not helping myself at all for qu quite a few years, wow, sadly. Yeah. Um, so then um, my husband and I, we were talking about auditions one day. And he said, oh, he said, I found this, I found that guy, Don Green's email address. He said, I know you have his books. He said, maybe he can help. So I emailed him like kind of on a whim. And uh, sure enough, I was extremely lucky because Don Green took me as a, uh, a client and I worked with him for like nine months. Uh, it was actually, looking back on it, I was very fortunate because it was the last year he was living in New York for real. And um yeah, so I worked with him, like I said, it was about nine months, and um, 
he would I would go meet him in his in his apartment or uh, in the diner around the corner from his apartment, and we would discuss books that I had to read. And it wasn't like his books. It was like other people's books. Because basically, like, what he kind of needed to do was to get my mindset in general to just kind of make a 180. And that's ultimately what happened. Um, For that year, I didn't take any auditions. He didn't say not to. I just felt like I needed to, like, deal with me. And just me, like, functioning in society. So... I read these books and I would come back and we would discuss them. Um, and it was great. Like I read uh, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. I read uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. I read a lot of Wayne Dyer. Um, you'll see it when you believe it. Uh, Real Magic, Power of Intention, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Neil Donald Walsh, Conversations with God. I think there was three volumes of that. The Esther and Jerry Hicks books, uh, Asking is Given. I think I've read a couple of others of those as well. Um, you know, and then he had other stuff that I had to listen to, books on tape, things like that, that he had. Um, he also went through his book, uh, Performance Success with me, because that's mm-hmm. the one where he outlines his, you know, for three weeks, you know, make this mock audition type thing. So we actually went over all the steps, but I never... At that point, I decided I wasn't taking an audition, um, but I had a, a va- you know, I knew how to make it work. Um, so sure enough, um, after nine months with him, you know, he basically also he also got me into doing meditations on a daily basis. Um, my first meditation that I used to do all the time, like for years, was Wayne Dyer. He has an ah meditation, which is it came off of a CD, which I think is called Meditations for Manifesting. And um, yeah, that was like my go-to for years to just manifest feeling good about myself, manifest performing well under pressure, manifest, you know, seeing myself play well at an audition, those types of things. And then sure enough, the first audition I ended up taking after that time uh, with Don was um, a second trumpet audition in the Allentown, Pennsylvania Symphony. And I made the finals. And I was like, whoa, I think I know what I'm doing. That's like super <laughs> cool. And then a couple of months later, I went, maybe three months later, I went and took a uh, president's own audition and I made the semifinal with like five other people. And I was like, whoa, that just got real. And then, yeah, I like played okay in the semis and, you know, was on my, was uh, sent on my way. But I was, <laughs> I was very, very thankful that that was the first like national audition that I took that I actually like did well, represented myself well. Um, yeah, I was pretty pumped. But In that time, uh, I was still, you know, I would call Don and he would help me out with just things here and there. And um, he said, you know, Joanne, it's it's a lifestyle. What you're doing is is a lifestyle, Uh, you know, deciding that you're going to, you know, try to be positive, deciding that you're going to be maybe in a neutral space about things. Um, and, And he basically told me that I should try to practice being positive in all aspects of my life. So he suggested that um, I try kundalini yoga. So 
I Googled it or whatever we did back then. I'm not really sure. So that was like 14 years ago. But um, I definitely did some sort of internet search. I can tell you that. But and she asked uh, Jeeves, right? Maybe. Or Bing. Yeah, asked Jeeves. <laughs> yeah. Bing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I found that there was actually quite a few Kundalini classes. Um, at that point, my husband and I were living in New Jersey and um, – you know, I found I found a large Kundalini yoga center in New York City called Kundalini Yoga East. And then I found multiple classes just within like five mile radius. And I started going and um, I really liked it because I could see how to use the postures and the breathing on a daily basis. And it started to really like settle me down and not be so judgmental. I mean, even being so, I think, positive about things, you know, being positive is good, but sometimes, you know, it's almost better to go into a situation not having any expectations, you know, whether they're negative or positive. It's kind of good to kind of go into something neutral because then, you know, your best, your best working within the now can happen. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I started doing Kundalini, and what it actually is is it's a it's a yoga of awareness, and it blends a lot of meditation with um, postures, and the class always follows. No matter where you go in the world, the class will always follow the same structure, and I think that's. I mean, I kind of like that aspect of it. It it just made sense. Like there's a tune in with a chant. Um, then there will be some breathing exercises. Um, there could be some warm up postures to kind of get your spine more flexible. Then you go into your Kriya, which is the set of postures. And then there's usually a deep relaxation followed by a meditation. And then there's a tune out where everyone sings together. Um, and I just really, I really liked the structure and I was already into doing a meditation. So I started to get really into the meditative aspect of the class. And when you go to the class, um, the teacher will frequently prompt you that, you know, once you're comfortable within the posture that you should close your eyes um, and focus inward at your third eye point, which is the point in between the eyebrows, and, you know, kind of get into your own breathing, your own rhythm on the posture so that you're, it's almost like the class then is moving. It's like a moving meditation the whole way. Hmm. So that worked really well for me um, at that time. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, I was really into it. And then I had found out about this um, this course that actually gets run all over the world at different different cities, different times, and it's called White Tantric Yoga. Right now it has suspended uh, for a few reasons, but um, obviously one being the pandemic. But basically you go to a place and in, you end up meditating with a whole bunch of people, but you get partnered off with someone. And if you don't have a partner, they just they just give you one. And you end up with your partner meditating for like eight hours that day. Whoa. Yeah. It's like, it's super intense. And um, it has like a whole lot to do with, so when you go to a, a white tantric yoga, as it's called, um, 
you're not going to do the same one twice because it has a lot to do with, you know, the stars and the moon and the calendar and how things align and what's supposed to happen and your geography and things like that. Um, so sometimes you go to white tantric and it's brutal. It's really hard. You get a lot of, a lot of meditations that are 52 minutes long or a lot of them that are 31 minutes long. And you're like, whoa, or you got to do weird hand mudras or you got to sit back to back with your partner or, you know, so it's sort of broken up that way. Sometimes you'll go and you may get a lot of 11 minute meditations or 22 minutes and you're like, Hey, this is pretty cool. But there's usually a, usually get hit with a 52 minute or whatever. Um, but I, I had told uh, my Kundalini yoga teacher that I was going to, within a couple of months of going, she made this, she had a flyer for white tantric. And I said, oh, and she told us all about it. And I said, oh, so you go there and you just meditate all day? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, I think I'm going to go. I think she thought I was like nuts because I'd only been going to classes maybe for like three months. And uh, I showed up and I saw her and she said, wow, you're going to go to teacher training someday. And I was like, no, I'm not. I just, I just wanted to meditate. Like that was, I have no interest in becoming a teacher. Um, but sure enough, I kind of thought about it because I've, I had done a bunch of different, um, bunch of different white tantrics throughout the years. And, you know, I try to go to classes where kind of wherever I am, like if I'm in Hawaii, I try to hit a class. Um, if I'm here, in New Jersey, I try to hit classes, and that's been going on for 14 years. Um, you know, and as much as the uh, the pandemic has been a total drag, um, you know, you really miss not not being with your orchestra and performing and being able to give that to an audience. Um, I decided in August when it looked like I was we were not starting our season in September. Um, I said maybe I can go for my yoga teacher certification. So I found a, a Kundalini course. Um, it was a little tricky though, because I was sort of like, I don't know when I'm going back to work. I'm currently six hours in a different time zone than Honolulu. Um, so I don't want to pick a course that's in going to be run in New York in the event that I have to go to go back to work in Honolulu, because then I'll have to take my course starting at like two in the morning and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that's going to be hard. So I started looking on the West Coast for an online course that would be run. I couldn't find one. Uh, I couldn't find one in California to start in the fall. I found one in Colorado. So I'm getting my certification from Kundalini Yoga in Crestone, Colorado. Wow. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot. To unpack. There's a, yeah, there's a lot to unpack <laughs> in there. Um, I don't actually know where to start, so I'm just going to pick something out, and we'll just roll with that. This, yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I feel the thing that uh, many of us can identify with in the story you just told is the the struggles with performance anxiety, the struggles with obviously how sometimes bad performances are like what cause it, right? Like we have these bad associations with the performances. And then ultimately what you're describing about making this 180 shift and turning it into a lifestyle. So the easiest way to ask this question is what was the 180 shift? Like what were you thinking before and 
what was this 180 shift towards what was your perspective afterwards? And uh, was it difficult? Uh, or once it made sense, was it just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And now we're doing that thing. Okay. Well, I can definitely say that when I was in school and shortly thereafter, um, I, I kind of expected, <laughs> I kind of expected things to not go great. Um, I slightly dreaded going to auditions. I mean, no one loves going to auditions, but you know, ultimately something clicks in your head and you're happy to go, you know, and play. But um, yeah, I was always uh, dreading. Um, I, I guess I was fearful of rejection. I was fearful that uh, my peers were going to think I sucked. Um, I was fearful that I wasn't good enough. I was fearful I was never going to win a job. I was fearful I was never going to work. So I think, you know, coming from a place where you I couldn't get around the fear that I generally had, um, you know, and I, you know, on the one hand, uh, it's not like I was a bad trumpet player coming out of school. I mean, I was solid, you know, um, but I think the problem was I was constantly listening to Hokan recordings and Phil Smith recordings and Bud Herseth recordings and being like, how come I can't make this sound like the Phil Smith CD? Like, what's wrong with me? Oh, there's got to be something wrong with me. And it's like, no, there's there's actually nothing wrong with you. You just have to you have to pick apart the details and, and figure out like detail by detail. Well, what is it about, you know, Phil's sound? What is it about the front of Phil's notes? What is it about Phil's releases? What is it about how he breathes in the middle of a phrase? Like, I could not, like, just hone in on the details and figure out um, how to make something work for me. I think also I kept thinking that I had to play like Phil Smith in order to win a job. And that was like, you know, mm. that's actually not true. Like, you have to play like you to win a job. <laughs> like... You know, you can't have you can't have thousands of Phil Smith clones out there. Like, you know, it doesn't work for all situations, and you can't be Phil Smith because there's only one Phil Smith. Um, yeah, sorry, that's such an interesting point because I find that you know emulation is an important like what you're describing is emulation is an important aspect of what we do in developing ourselves as players, but it it can very easily lead to feeling like, well, that's what it ends up. That's like the end goal. Then the end goal should be that or whatever, you know, insert player that you are admiring and trying to emulate. And so, I mean, maybe this is, this is where you're headed, but I'm kind of curious through the lens of two, like how do we separate from that and begin to trust I've emulated enough. Now it's time for me to develop my own. And that's, that's tough. I think, um, because I was so focused on the negative and my fears, my own fears, um, that's why I couldn't just decide, I couldn't flip the switch in a way to be like, no, what you do is actually good. Just clean up the details and you'll win a job. Like, And at some point, I finally got there. <laughs> but it, it took... I mean, it's it took a, it took quite quite a few years for me to decide um, for me to not be afraid. I think that's it. It it just took a long time for me to not be afraid to do it. Um, and 
basically, I mean, this is going to sound super like it, it could be taken negatively, but um, when I was working with Don Green and reading all these books and then having to like really think them through, I sort of had to just kind of get brainwashed into being positive. Mm. That's what I needed. And I don't think I, that's that's just what I needed. And it worked because coming out of that, it was like slowly but surely. I was like, oh, you know, like I'm going, I'm not afraid now. I can I can record myself playing Petrushka and I could take it apart and I can say, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, it was like I finally stopped comparing myself to, you know, the people that I always emulated. It was like, all right. Now I'm going to figure out the details to make it work for me. And you know what? If I have to play it on the E-flat trumpet, I'm going to play it on the E-flat trumpet. Yeah, as you know, this is a huge part of my work, right? The things, trying to develop a system that allows you to ask the question of what can I steal from somebody else's playing, but then be able to establish it where I'm at right now. And, you know, another client asked me this question the other day. We were talking about listening, and and that would be the next step in their development and he was saying, like, I listen to this, like, let's say I listen to the Tomasi, but I'm playing Arbin Page 28, you know, like, whatever. Like, it sometimes doesn't feel like it can uh, transfer as easily because it's like, I hear this crazy piece, but that doesn't really relate. So obviously having a teacher that can emulate that for you is an effective version of being able to have that. But I think your what you're describing is kind of the alternative solution is to try to actually pick out aspects, not just this whole thing, but like, I like the way Phil's sound rings. Like, can I bring that ring into the simple exercises, arguably the simple exercises that would be the easiest to do it in, and then allowing to find success and then saying like, okay, cool, I can do it on something. Now I just need to progress and hold it until I can do it on the things I want. Yeah, and I, I also think too, like you use the Tomasi or you just mentioned the Tomasi, and it's like, well, you know, how can I practice? You can you can take stuff out of the Arbin, and you can say, okay, I'm going to play this in the style of Tomasi, or now I'm going to play this in the style of Mahler, or I'm going to play this in the style of Johann Strauss, or I'm going to play this in the style of Mozart. And, you know, that's, that's what being creative is about, and that's what being, you know, figuring out how you can, you have to be able to sell the styles all the time. I mean, as you know, when you go to work, it's like, you're not playing Mahler 5 every week. It's like, you got to be able, you know, as much as we'd all love to be playing Mahler 5 every week, I mean, you know, there's other weeks you got to play other stuff. Like, you got to, you got to sell Daphnis and Chloe. You've, you've got to sell these other things. So, you know, the more that I think you can be flexible in your mind, um, but that also uh, the only way that you can be flexible in your own mind is you have to not be, uh, you have to, there was something that Vince Penzarella used to say, and I'm, I'm going to clean up the language on it because we're on a nice <laughs> podcast, but he would say, you have to be afraid to screw up. Mm. And, you know, I, or not afraid to screw up. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I was always afraid to screw up. And he would always, you know, he would sort of tell, he would he would blatantly tell me that. He'd be like, Joanne, you're just too afraid. You're just too afraid. And I was like, well, I'm doing what I, I'm mis making all the, I'm playing all the notes. I remember one time I was playing Tomasi for him, and he was like, yeah, you're playing all the notes, but you're not saying anything. And I was like, oh, 
but I didn't like, yeah, it's, it takes, you have to, you have to just not be afraid. All right. I have a sort of a pedagogy ish question because I, I have, I have decently strong opinions about this. Um, you know, do you think there's any value in developing into a person who can play the notes so then you can start asking the question of what I want to say with them? Or because the alternative, the other side is like, I am saying a lot, but missing every single note, right? Like I don't have the skills to back up what I want to say. And in my education, I experienced this a fair amount actually where I would hear Bud Herseth play and then say like, I hear that in my head. I know what I want to say. I just can't actually do it. And that was about as frustrating as anything I've ever experienced. And quite like, I don't even want to try to do it because I know I can't. So I kind of experienced the other side where my skills couldn't support the level of nuance that I wanted to be able to do. And so I wonder if you have an opinion on not that you have to develop one before the other, but that it might be okay to develop yourself to a point where like you have the notes so you can consistently start asking what do I want to do with them? Yeah. Or do you think it's just wrong? It's okay. I just kind of curious. What no, you think. I don't. Um, when I was in high school and I studied with Ed Troidel, he was always trying to get me to just play the style. And I would be like, you know, I'd be playing stuff and I was like, this is awful, you know, <laughs> but you know, he would, he would throw the things at me. He'd be like, oh, you can, you know, you, you can play that last movement of the Hummel, just go. And I'd be like, I can't just go. Like, you know, he was, he was fantastic to kind of get you, like I said, to, to just kind of do things. But I definitely in high school didn't have a lot of, lot of skills, um, yeah, to like execute. So when I got to college, I was I was actually quite grateful that I was sort of fearless about some things. Like I uh they had a special audition for our, our wind ensemble in um in my first semester at BU was going to play the Stravinsky octet. And I was a freshman. And I got placed in this ensemble. I'm like, at the first concert, I played a bunch of second trumpet things. There are a bunch of kids older than me. Um, it didn't dawn on me when they said that we were going to play Stravinsky Octet and they were going to audition us within the ensemble to actually get the parts. It never dawned on me that I should not go do that. Um, and when I... <laughs> So I went to the, and, and I, you know, I was 18. I had, I was like, oh, if you're going to go take an audition, you go get the second, you go get the first trumpet part and you just learn it. And I'll just go play that for the conductor. Like they didn't tell us that the parts were wildly different. Maybe I should pick one or the other. I just went in with the first trumpet part and I was like, oh, I listened to a recording a bunch of times. I probably had no business going to do this, but I had no fear because I had no expectations. And um, I went, I played this private audition for the conductor and he asked me to do some stuff differently. And I actually did because I, I was just so flexible and so neutral about the whole thing. And then when they posted that I got assigned the, I got assigned the cornet part in the octet and, you know, I beat out all these upperclassmen. Everyone was like, oh my God, you just, you got one of the parts. And they were like, people were like, 
there was a mixture. You know, some people were happy. Some people were pissed. I remember even just before the audition, uh, someone was like, you're going in and playing the first trumpet part. You know, I didn't prepare that part because I know that the, I don't deserve that. And I was mm. sort of like chuckling like at that response. And part of me for a split second was like, maybe this guy's right. He's older than me. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And I was like, and in that couple of minutes before I went in to play, I was like, that's like dumb. You prepared this, just go play it. And if you don't get in, you don't get any of the parts, then whatever. But I got the second part and everyone was like, whoa. But mm. I think the thing that was cool, I guess where I'm going with this story versus, with what you were saying is, um, you know, I just played the style and I obviously played the trumpet well enough that I pulled off the style. Um, but I do think at some point you can't just be playing style and missing a ton of notes because, yeah. you know, you're, you're never going to win an audition that way. You're never going to hold a job that way. So there's got to be a point, you know, there's got to be a balance, I sure. think. I completely agree. I, I think why I feel so strongly about this is I just... It's like I play, I don't know, this is like going to define my life in many ways, I'm about to say, but I basically just operated on like charm for a very long time. You know, I just like knew I could sort of charm my way into like, I messed up, but then like someone feels bad for me. Or maybe I just had really amazing people around me who saw right through it and they were still nice to me. But as a trumpet player, still like same kind of thing. Like maybe I wasn't super prepared, but I could just sort of, do it. I could sort of just go for it. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't like always perfect or it wasn't even necessarily my best. It was just like enough, you know, like it was enough to get by for the thing. But my, I hold this stance now that that will, that only took me so far. And then I just like, didn't know anything after that. That's like why we are where we are with this whole like coaching thing is like, I realized I don't know anything about how to get past once I've like maximized charm like where do i go from there basically and so i completely agree like i think it's a good solution in terms of compelling performance and it's the only solution for a compelling performance and it can get you into places you maybe don't quote feel like you deserve but it only takes you at least it only took me so far into my career before i had to actually like learn what was going on and how to like play the instrument and how to practice and all those kinds of things Definitely. I mean, there comes a point where it's like, okay, um, I, yeah, like you really, you, you see all the, the high level skills that people have sitting around you that, you know, you, um, that you're like, yeah, I want to be able to do that. How are they doing that? And then that's when you, you know, you kind of mature and you figure out like how to pick apart your practicing and how to deal with details and yeah, how to just pick things apart. And um, yeah, especially like when I was studying at Manhattan school, like every, every trumpet player in the studio I was with, like everyone played well and it was super cool because everyone had also like everyone had like a special thing that they did that was like you know shimmery awesome and the thing that was super cool about going to school there um 
you know, I don't think people were jealous of other people. We actually like really enjoyed, you know, I, I enjoyed hearing Brad tongue and I'd be like, Hey, you know, how do you tongue so fast? Like, what do you use? And he was like, Oh, do you want to sit down and do Gecker? So I learned about the Gecker book from my friend Brad, you know, it was like, I used to practice all, all the time uh, with my friend Brynjar who could kind of do everything, um, you know, his technical ability was just so much better than mine on the trumpet. But, you know, there was like phrasing and lyrical things I played better than he did. And, you know, we we sort of picked each other's brains like, well, how did you do that? Or how did you do that? You know, and it's um, I think, yeah, you start to figure figure that kind of stuff out because you're like, hey, you know, this person's like my age. This person's, you know, we're all in the same we're all in the same pool right now. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, what are they doing? Like, how are you, how are you practicing that? And then, you know, it just, I think the better you get, the more, you know, the more you realize you have to just kind of get more and more efficient, um, to get things done, to get to the next level. Yeah. And like what you're describing about being in an, you know, at a, at a college or an institution or, or whatever, you know, you like have that it, sort of the community, especially if it's a good community, just breeds creativity and everybody wins. You know, everybody gets to benefit from everybody else's knowledge. You see this in other, you know, this is going to sound kind of, maybe it'll sound nerdy. I don't know. I'm kind of into like video game speed running and like casually just like learning about it. And I've just never seen a, like each individual community. It's insane. The levels that they, they just care about the game being broken, right? They don't care who did it and they don't care who's currently the best at it. They just care about like, we're just going to break this game and try to figure out how to like do this thing. And we're all going to help each other learn how to do it. And it's not about who's the best and it's not about who gets who. Um, and, you know, I, I I feel like when you're in an environment like that, like I said, everybody wins and then everybody gets to know what everybody else is doing. And then you just, like you said, it, it becomes this. So I kind of miss that, I guess, about... Um, being in an environment like that where I'm at home and I'm forced to just like muster up all of the energy to learn new things all the time and find inspiration. You don't have to try quite so hard to find inspiration when you're surrounded by other people, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I think, I think coming out of school, that was one of, one of the things that really just kind of made me depressed. It was like, oh man, you know, I, I used to play with, you know, killer players all the time and, uh, you know, I'm not <laughs> right now, or, you know, it's like, uh, I used to be able to have, you know, great stimulating conversations like all day, every day while I was at school. And, you know, once you get out of school and you're in your own, you know, isolated world bubble, you're like, oh, so people like, not everyone is talking about niche. Not everyone is, you know, reading really cool books and you're like, oh man, this is a real downer. So it's, yeah. Yeah. For me, that was like relatively disillusioning uh, as well. I can completely understand. Um, where do you, I mean, maybe this is like part of what you were describing about diving into kundalini yoga and maybe writing a blog. I know you did that for a while and you're starting to do it again. Um, is this part of trying to find inspiration and trying to find communities of people who dig the things that you dig? Or is it just like that the trumpet is only one aspect and I have many other interests? Like kind of what does it mean for you to have these other outlets? Um, and is it related to that, the loss of that 
um, thing from previously? Well, I feel like, um, you know, when pre-pandemic times, when you're, you know, when you're playing concerts week in, week out, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in the concert hall or it's education shows or, yeah, you know, I guess that's it. Um, you know, uh, you feel like you're giving something, you know, you feel like you're actually contributing to society. Um, you know, you're, you're having, you're giving people the chance to kind of leave their own reality for an hour and a half when you're giving a concert. Um, if you're giving an education show, you're, you know, you're showing, you're introducing younger, younger kids to, uh, you know, to brass instruments and what they can do and the music they could listen to. Um, and what I'm, what I have been finding during the pandemic is, um, you know, we don't, we don't have that outlet anymore. Um, you know, I play second trumpet the majority of my job and it's like, I, I love making harmonies and collaborating. And it's like, okay, like I can't really you know, I can't do that by myself. Um, you know, so I, what I am doing with Kundalini Yoga, um, I'm starting to offer, uh, weekly classes and I'm trying to, uh, roll out programs, um, starting in the spring and the summer that is basically going to, um, mix or make a union. The word yoga actually means union. So, you know, you, can say you're making a union of your conscious mind with the, with the, you know, the universal mind. You could also say it's a union of your, you know, your mind, your body, and your soul, um, that type of thing. What I'm looking to do is help people, musicians, hopefully, um, help people kind of make a union between their music making and their wellness. Because for me, it has been a huge constant, um, huge constant in a positive way. Um, you know, I, I do, I end up doing a lot of traveling because I don't live in Honolulu all the time because my husband actually lives on the East coast. So we've actually done a long distance marriage for, you know, five seasons. And when I was playing in Charleston before that, we did it for another two. Um, and then I end up, you know, maybe I'm subbing in Tucson or, or playing in a few other places. I feel like just being able to do, you know, a morning set of some kind of yoga or meditation, it just helps me feel grounded so that wherever I am, I feel fine. And, you know, so I can perform jet lagged. I can go to rehearsals jet lagged because I just, you know, I can stay in the moment and not be weird um, so I feel like Kundalini yoga has just given me such a really strong base to kind of deal with, you know, traveling a lot, performing a lot. Um, even when I was primarily freelancing in New York, um, and just having to wear all the hats all the time, um, you know, cause you just never know the situations you're going to, you know, show up in, um, you know, maybe you're subbing on a Broadway show, you know, this week, but maybe next week you're playing some offstage on, uh, I don't know, Janacek Sinfonietta with an orchestra. Maybe following week you're going down to Baltimore to play with Baltimore Symphony. Maybe I'm flying to Florida to play with some orchestra. It's like, you know, things can be that varied when, when I was working there. But I, 
I guess my long-winded answer is basically mm -hmm. I feel like kundalini yoga has really just kind of given me a really solid base to kind of um, deal with all of the moving parts that I kind of always have in my life. Uh, I kind of know the answer to this next question, but I'd just like to hear it however you would like to phrase it. Uh, is is something like kundalini yoga for everyone? You know, like, do you think everybody would benefit from it? Or do you feel like there's people that it, it like totally like wouldn't work for them? Can you think of a scenario of that? Or I'm just curious for your response. I think if you're breathing, you'll find a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in all seriousness, because I mean, you, you, I, you know, you go to a class and that follows the same structure. But quite honestly, like, if you, you know, if you need to calm down one day, you can just do three minutes of breathing exercises and you can get yourself centered and grounded. Um, let's say, uh, God, what else? I mean, there's all kinds of things. I mean, there's kundalini kriyas for basically anything you could possibly think of. Any lack in, you know, any lack in your body or, or um, you know, let's say you hurt something, let's say you're mentally just kind of feel frazzled, like there's a meditation for that. There's a Kriya for that. So I think as long as you're open-minded and you'd like to just, you know, try it, I think anybody can do it. Um, the thing that's like pretty cool about it is, you know, like I said, you're always doing something that can balance anything in you. You can balance your chakras. You can balance your glandular system. You can balance the two hemispheres of your brain. Um, there's, there's like no, there's no lack in Kundalini yoga. Um, and like I said, I mean, all it takes is some breathing. You don't even, you don't even have to be really flexible. I'm actually not extremely flexible at all. Like I've done other yogas where I've actually gotten yelled at in the class because I was doing, I don't know, wasn't quite in the posture the right way or, and I was like laughing cause I was sort of like, wow, there's like, there's like a woman yelling at me right now. And I'm like an adult, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that type of thing does not happen in Kundalini yoga. You know, it's, it's all about your experience and your truth for that day, that time period, whatever it's, you know, there's no judgments. It's, it's just a matter of being here now in, in a neutral space. So I think anybody could benefit, have benefit from it. Sure. You did mention this by saying the words, if you're open to it, right? That's like the part of it. So I'm just curious if you have any insight onto like what barriers exist for people being open to it. Because I could even say from my perspective, like even some of the language feels like a slight barrier, right? Talking about things like chakras and your third eye, like some of this language can feel like that's not me, like just through like judgment alone of like some of the words, if that makes sense. And I feel like other people, so like what, are, what barriers do you feel like exist? Maybe that's one of them. And like, I mean, obviously the solution is just to do it or to try it, but maybe you can try to connect other people who have barriers that they may not recognize. So maybe they can see that this could be beneficial for them, but they maybe need to sort of deal with this thing that's in their way. Like for me, the language is something I would have to like reconcile with, you know, because for me, that's difficult. Oh, I can understand that. Um, okay, well, instead of saying the third chakra, 
you can say, okay, right now, close your eyes. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Exhale slowly through the nose. Now inhale again and just focus around your belly button area. And think of a golden orb that's in there. And that's just a really comfortable energy source for you to draw off of. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, you could take all the woo-woo words out of it. Yeah, right. Um, but that's a barrier for me in a lot of things. You know what I mean? It's like... It's it's like when it's like someone says words like that, you know, almost the word vulnerability does that to me too. Like I totally understand the value, but like hearing the word vulnerable like too many times in a short span of time, I start to get like, like, okay, I need to like go like deadlift right now or something. <laughs> it's just too many. It's like, it's like basically like maybe what it is that, that gets to me is it's just like, it's like feelings, right? It's like feelings centered. And sometimes I don't want to like be feeling centered for an extended period of time. You know, I can deal with it for like a second. Maybe that's part of the problem for me. I think, you know, some of it too, you know, we think of a yoga class and we think, um, oh, I've got to go. And, you know, I got to go for like an hour. I got to wear special clothes. I got to have a mat. I got to do all these things. Okay. Truth, truth time on me. Um, I don't necessarily like to go places to have to exercise, quote unquote. So um, I, you know, I'm much more of a, I like to kind of do stuff wearing whatever I'm wearing. I only bought yoga pants for the first time, I think like last year, because I like bought them to wear them like underneath a dress, honestly. Um, so very frequently when I do yoga, if I'm, you know, home and I'm doing it by myself, um, I'm wearing jeans. Mm. I'm not use. I don't even, I don't even use a yoga mat. I actually have a yoga mat and I bought it <laughs> because I needed to like go somewhere where I heard like there wouldn't be mats. But like, yeah, I don't even, I don't even use a yoga mat. It's like um, st step one in the certification is buy a yoga mat. And you're like, oh, I guess I got to buy one now. <laughs> Actually, I don't even, I don't even think they know in teacher, cert in T, I don't even know that in my certification, I don't think they know I don't have a mat. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I, I don't think they'd be too thrilled that they, you know, I mean, but that's me, you know, I very frequently like to be, I, I don't want to have to change my clothes to go exercise. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm in Hawaii, I mean, I, I go hiking all the time and, and do stuff. And it's like, if I can't just wear the clothes I'm wearing, like, I kind of don't want to go. I don't, I don't like having to wear special things. Sure. I can understand. Yeah. It's a drag. Wanna, it takes way more. to go start and do it. Yeah. It just takes, it takes too much time to like have to change and get special <laughs> shoes on. It's like, ah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I. Yoga is something that I've had minimal experience with, but I understand what have benefit. You know what I mean? It's like this weird thing where I, I totally understand the benefit of what it could do for me, but I just like don't do it. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. And I mean, there was a time too, like, you know, as much as I've been mostly practicing it for, you know, 14 years, I mean, I've gone in spurts where I'm like, yeah, I'm just whatever. I'm cool. I think another thing for me to 
that I recognize and I, I think does stop me a little bit is I'm like, I already have like pow- like my power, like the powerlifting thing. And like, I still somewhat haven't separated that. Like they're not inherently the same thing. Like it's not, yoga is not like necessarily a form of exercise as like spending time in the gym is a form of exercise. And like, I think I've mixed those two up for so long that like, it's almost like I have to find extra time to do this extra thing, if that makes sense. I feel like that's maybe the time of just like, I'm already doing all the things I'm already doing. So to think of adding this other thing into my life, like you're saying, it's like an hour to go to this place and do this place. So for people like me, and well, like for me and for people like me, what's some a way you have rec, uh, a possible recommendation for like how we could integrate this into our lives? So is it possible to do without almost even feeling like you're you're doing it? Or it's like, you know, here's the minimum amount that you would really need to do to see some of the benefits and it would take you 15 minutes or, or is there any kind of recommendations you have that are like that? Oh, definitely. I mean... I have I have a couple of thoughts on what you're what you're asking. Yeah, so, it. yeah. So the first thing is literally like you could find a YouTube video and you could seriously do a breathing exercise for like three minutes and you'll feel a difference. Like it really takes like no time at all. It's like, you know, or um, you could do a couple of postures literally for three minutes and you'll feel a difference. It's like seriously nothing. Um, That's the first thing. Second thing, um, I think it's really important that people have an outlet outside, well, especially musicians. I think it's really important for musicians to have an outlet outside of music in some way because so frequently, like, you know, music takes up, your work, it can take up your hobby, it can take up your volunteer time, it can take up, you know, social life. Yeah, it takes up everything. Um, I think it's really important uh, just for your brain to be doing different things. Um, So, I mean, I have hobbies. And when I first developed hobbies, I say that in quotes, because I I found it really funny that, you know, it's sort of like that, that musician... Thing that like oh if you're not working on music 24 7 then you know you're you're not you're not serious enough and I remember when I first got a hobby of hiking with my friends and it was like oh this is really cool I really like this and you know that became a thing that I did once a week yoga became a thing that I did once a week um, around that time making sure I was uh, taking time to read something. I mean, now I, I read roughly a book a month and it's like, but I think it's like really important. I think it's really important that, you know, I originally started that thing just to get out of picking up my smartphone all the time. Cause I, st- I noticed that when the first year I got a smartphone, I was like, wow, I only read like five books this year. Usually I read like eight or 10. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I'm going to become an idiot because all I keep doing is looking (laughs) at my smartphone. Um, So I think, um, and then photography became a a hobby of mine as well, Um, you know, a little bit later on. I mean, it was sort of like I I picked up these along the way, I would say, in the last 14 years. Uh, Kundalini yoga was the first first thing I sort of picked up as a hobby. But um, I think, like, if you're going to lift 
on, you know, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then, you know, I think you could make time on Tuesday to try yoga that day. Yeah, right. Or you could try swimming on Thursday. I mean, I, I threw swimming out there just because, you know, I'm in Hawaii, uh, you know, half the year. And it's like, you know, I, I try to, I, I guess I try, it's sort of like playing trumpet or things that you've talked about in your coaching sessions with me. Um, you know, you're going to practice single tonguing exercise. You know, you're going to practice, you know, Arbin page 16, whatever. You're going to practice one of those exercises to, you know, work on the fronts of your single tongue. And that exercise is going to get significantly better. But it's really when you actually go to tongue other things, like can you hear that there's a difference in the quality of how you're playing the single tongue? So I kind of feel like asking your body to kind of do a different form of exercise regular, regularly, I think, is really good at just keeping your overall health good. Um, I mean, I love hiking. I try to go hiking once a week. Um, I do ocean swimming. Um, I started doing that just because I tore my hamstring like two years ago and I couldn't like, I couldn't go on any like kick-ass hikes. It was all mm -hmm. like, I could only go on like smaller, <laughs> lighter things that yeah. were like less strenuous because yeah, I was injured. Um, I think yoga is a good thing just because it's, it's a good, you know, you're making that union between your mind and your body. You know, you're getting that flexibility going. You're also, you also could be getting your heart rate up. Um, you know, uh, I also like to mix in running. I think running is also really good, but it's like, I don't do every one every day. I, I, I try to mix it up. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective. I kind of, I like that. One of the things that we've talked a lot about, and I'm kind of curious because I don't actually remember if I followed up on this or not, but, you know, part of what I believe the power in organization and stuff in your practice sessions is not only efficiency, but like when you're done, you're done. Like for that day, like you're like, I have done the things that I'm supposed to do. I've set myself parameters of an amount of work. Obviously, you know, we do it through repetition. But just in general, I've set parameters for like what this amount of work will be and what this amount. And when I'm done, I'm finished. And so like I don't have to spend the rest of my day wondering, should I have practiced 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, another 30 minutes? Should I come back to it later? Like it's like even when we leave a practice session, it can still consume our thoughts if we aren't able to sort of put that away for the day and make a space for it, just like you're making space for all these other things. So um I'm kind of curious just for your thoughts on like how you, maybe it's, maybe it's just like what we, the work we've done, or maybe you've had experiences this, with this previously, but what your thoughts are on that of being able to like, you're making time for yourself as a musician, obviously more than one day a week, you know, but the idea being you're just making ice space for it. But then when you're not doing that, you're present in other things. So it doesn't consume your thoughts massively. I'm kind of curious for your, or your perspective on that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, practicing is like, it's like having to cook or it's like having to brush your teeth. It's like stuff that you have to do every day. Um, you know, uh, it's thing, it, I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. And I feel like when you do set a boundary for it, I feel like you appreciate it a lot more. Um, you're just, you're, 
when you're in that boundary and you're like, okay, this is my practice time, you know, um, like, uh, for me, I'm very focused on, okay, what do I have to get done? How can I make this a little better? Uh, let me record that. Cause I'm actually not totally sure how that came out. Um, you know, I'm in it 100%. And I approach everything that I do kind of that way so that I can be fully in the present um, on my practice. And then once my practice is done, um, you know, it's done for the day. Like you said, um, it's not going to be lingering, you know, nine o'clock at night, like, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't finish X or whatever. It's like, no, I finished it. It's done. Like, I'll deal... You know, I did what I could today and tomorrow's another day. You know, I'm going to have to rebuild the house again tomorrow. You know, that's that's I think the the beauty and the curse of of playing an instrument as a profession. You know, it's awesome because um, you get to do it and it's fun and, uh, you know, and it's and it's awesome to see how much you can push the envelope on yourself. Mm. But on the other hand, you know, it's also the, oh, man, you know, we're going to Europe for two weeks. Like, am I really going to practice for two, not practice for two weeks? And it's like, oh, man, my chops are going to be, like, really jacked up if I do that. And it's like, all right. So the curse part is you got to drag a trumpet along and you, you got to find some time. But, you know, that's the payoff. That's the payoff to the rest of the year when you're like, yeah, you know, this is so awesome. I'm I'm super pumped. Everything's working really well. Um, so yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, when you're playing when you're playing trumpet, you're there. You're playing trumpet. Just like, you know, when you make a, a coffee date with your friend and you go to, you know, back when we would actually go to coffee shops and hang out with a friend, um, you know, you're not sitting there checking your phone the whole time. You're there with your friend. Like, do that. It's it's the same thing. Like, be mindful and listen to your friend because you made the date to like hang out. Just like, you know, if you're making a if you're cooking dinner, like don't be looking at the wrong recipe <laughs> or or one of my one of my favorite things that I, I like to tell you, like some of my trumpet students, is when you're driving the car. <laughs> Are you looking in the rear of your mirror the whole time to see what you hit in the that already passed? Like, no, like you have to be in the present and you have to be looking forward. So, yeah, I find that to be. Well, this is a I have like six things I want to say, so I'll start I'll start with this as like someone who regularly interviews people. This is like the most essential part about interviewing is like actually listening to somebody when they're talking versus when I first started doing it, I would I would listen until I got the thing that they said that I was going to ask next. And it was possibly good because I always had like a follow-up question, but then I wasn't listening to what they were saying as intently afterwards. So it was almost like I was listening so that I could just be a good interviewer, but the more I'm in the present, I like forget half the things I want to ask because we've moved on to a new thing. So I would totally agree. And these kinds of skills that you can practice in the practice room or wherever are life skills. Like we need to be present to live a full and active life. So developing a, a practice system that forces you to be present because this is the work that you're going to do today, I think only enhances that. Um, you said something too that I would like you to speak to because you said, you know, practicing like brushing your teeth or eating or whatever, something you got to do every single day. But as you know, I 
at least my programming is for six days a week with a with a scheduled day off. And I'm kind of curious if you want to speak to this at all, because this is something I was trying to talk to people on Instagram about. I was saying things like, do you take days off? If you do, why do you not take days off? Why? And it's interesting because it seems to be a thing that a lot of people believe is like you shouldn't take a day off. Like it's going to be this whole thing if you take a day off. But obviously, obviously, like we program them in. But even if you don't, just the idea of taking rest when necessary, I believe is a good idea. I'm just kind of curious for your thoughts on that to get more people on my side. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of taking a day off. <laughs> I think it's just good, you know, cause you kind of get on a roll for those five or six days in a row. Um, you know, you get on a roll and you are building momentum throughout the week of getting better and better and better at, you know, your list of skills that you want, that etude that you're practicing, maybe that music for the concert. Um, and then I think the day away from it is just healthy for your brain because you, you're taking a step back and then you're starting on the next day after the rest uh, just with a, you know, a fresh head, fresh perspective, fresh eyes, you know. I think it's good. Yeah, because some of the feedback I got from people were like, well, if I take a day off, you know, it's like 50-50 whether it's going to feel okay if I come back to it on my face. And it just seems like the people who don't take a day off are worried about their ab ability to play the instrument. And the people that do take a day off are worried about their brain. <laughs> like, am I, do I have a healthy relationship with my instrument? Taking a day off can help with, does that make sense? Like what I'm saying, like this desire to not take a day off is like, me playing the trumpet at my highest level is the most important thing. And people who do take a day off seem to say, like, I can prioritize the trumpet as one of the important things, but like my mental health or my ability to do other things or my ability to rest and trust in the work is also important as well. And I believe in that very deeply. I do too. And I, I really think, um, man, I had something really good to say. See, we were in the moment and now it's gone. So in the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, um, I don't know. I know some players that um, they don't take a day off. That's like not their thing. They're not into it. You know, they've, they've, they've built it up that way um, for years and years. Um, I think the important part is that Whatever thing that you're going to do, you have to be in it 100% of that time. So, you know, when I'm practicing six days a week, I'm practicing. And then on that seventh day, let's say I want to go take the 12-mile the hike, you know, and I don't want to have to worry about having to practice when I get back because I'm going to be beat, you know. I'm not mentally, I'm just going to be too tired to give the proper attention that the trumpet's going to need that day. Um, and I, I think I just trust in that, um, you know, the, the trumpet is like a lifelong relationship that we have with it and with music. And it's, it's just because you take a day off doesn't mean it goes away. It just means that, you know, you, there's always something to do. You know, you're, the work will be there. The trumpet will be there. Um, yeah, there's always something to do. So yeah. you're, you're not going to miss out. You just do it. Just do it Monday. Just don't do it Sunday. Well, and I just find that 
some of the feedback I've gotten, and I can understand this, I think it comes from a place of, like, if I take a day off, now I'm behind of where I could have been if I didn't take a day off. Like, we're on a, we're on a scale of every day I do something, it moves, it ticks it forward no matter what. And we don't, we can't see it for, well, if I play six days a week and I take a seventh day off, like, the, it's going to take, this is the same. Like, we, we feel like we're in control I think it's a bit of a fallacy to believe. I know what I'm saying that I am in control 100% of my progress. And like every minute I spend is a direct correlation to how much better I get on my instrument. I think there is an amount of like your body is adapting to the skill that you're asking it to adapt to. And that A, takes time. And B, you're sort of at the mercy. The only thing you can control is the quality of the work that you do. I don't really think you can control like how fast your body determines it's going to figure out what it is. It's the same thing with like any, this is like genetics almost more than it is with anything, you know? And so I think you're right. Like just being present and then just acknowledging that like we're doing a lifelong thing, I think is a really beautiful perspective. I try to hold the same thing and it's really nice to be reminded from everywhere and that this is actually um, the case. And I imagine you're, you're, you know, saying the same thing with kundalini yoga and with running and photography and all of these things, it's just a lifelong, I'm doing it because of enjoyment, not because I have to prove myself through any of these activities. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I, because I guess I'm a musician and I was a musician first, it's like, there's always that in the other activities I do. It's like, well, you know, especially photography, because it's like, you know, you can see, you can see how you're getting better. You know, you could see yourself acquiring more skills to edit or how to operate the camera and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, but the thing is, I mean, there's only so much you can do in a day. And I think, you know, actually when I studied with Bob Sullivan, he had a really cool, uh, practice perspective and it was the first time I had ever heard this. Um, he would say, like, you can't just play Bordoni etudes every day and then blow off double tugging three days out of the week. He said, you know, he would basically say, like, you have to practice every skill that you want to get better every day so that everything is progressively getting better because otherwise you're really good at two things and then you're kind of okay at three things and then you're bad at one thing. So I, I thought that that was, you know, really refreshing to hear, you know, when I was going for my master's cause I never actually thought about practicing that way. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, because I used to, there were things that I would clearly be like, oh, I don't want to practice transposition, such a drag. And it would be like, you know, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. You know, maybe I'd look at some transposition assignments a couple of times in that week. And then I'd be like, ah, oh, I just, you know, because I'd save it to last. And I'd be like, man, it's 10 o'clock at night. You know, you're just college. Like, right, you're practicing. Right. <laughs> you're practicing five hours a day. You're just like oh, this is the last thing I want to do. And my buddies are already done. Everyone's going out for a beer. Like, or I could sit here with the Soxa book for the next 45 minutes and sound like total garbage. This is like leaving like, abs to the end of a workout. You're just not going to do it, you know? No. <laughs> you know, so I, I think, uh, you know, I think with everything, I mean, for me at least, um, uh, I'm, I'm most comfortable just having a balance in my life of things. You know, I, I want a balanced 
you know, I'm I'm balancing my marriage and I'm balancing trumpet playing. And when we're at work, we're balancing our work relationships. And, you know, you're balancing your friend relationships. You're, you know, and you want to hit your hobbies a little bit. It's like everything's going to be there. You'll get to it. It's just, you know, yeah. you got to schedule it. Well, and as you know, obviously, through the way we organize things and, and whatever, my method, I don't know. Um, like the concept of skill development, it's just, it's, there's research in other aspect in other areas, you know, like not in music, but in other areas that basically show that acquiring skill needs frequency more than volume, right? Like the idea of you can do a lot of something and that's good. Like the more you do, the the better. But if you do a little bit and you do it frequently, like, I mean, this is just this is just supported by the idea that if I did like 30 squats on Monday or I did three, you know, I don't know how the math, like four squats every day, right? Like basically that's the same or almost the same amount of repetitions. But because I'm coming back each and every day, like I don't have a week in between times I'm practicing. So I have the chance to remember that cue and my body can say, oh yeah, it's not been that long since I did it. And like, yes, for overall strength gain and muscle development, like you have to manage more volume accumulation over time. But the idea of just learning that skill, your body just needs more chances to practice. And you're talking from day to day, not from like hour to hour. Like tomorrow I need to practice this again. I did enough today. I just don't think we know what enough is most of the time, which is why we talk about setting a boundary, seeing what happens, and then responding to the data you get. Definitely. I think, um, you know, what you're saying about that, it's it's sort of like you have to, you have to like sort of learn what works best for you and what is that balance for you with these things. And I would agree. I don't think doing 30 squats on a Monday, uh, we actually have, we have a, we have a, a posture that we do in Kundalini yoga called frogs. And it's kind of like a squat and it's a little funky. Um, and cause you kind of look like a frog while you're doing it. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, if I did, if I did 54 squat, if I did 54 frogs on Monday, but then I decided, you know, when I did yoga again on Tuesday, I'm just not going to do any because, you know, my thighs are kind of hard and whatever. Well, guess what? It's going to be essentially almost a whole week again before I'm really going to gear up to do 54. I'm never going to hit. I'm never going to. It's always going to be hard. Yeah. Like, I definitely agree. You got to go a little bit a day and gradually increase. And you need the the argument then for like the, by that logic, we would do it every single day, right? By that logic. And so there's also research supporting the idea that rest is an important part of overall accumulation because if we fatigue ourselves and we don't rest, then we're working in a fatigued state, which is less than optimal. And we can't really grow in a fatigued state. So we have to manage doing the right amount of fatigue and then resting so that we can grow back a little bit stronger and then the right amount of fatigue. But we don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think people always think about it like this in terms of music practice. No, I don't think they do. I, I actually, with my, I teach, um, yeah, I teach like a handful of high school students and, uh, you know, there's always the, uh, well, how much should I practice? What should I do? And I always say, as long as you're practicing the majority of the week, you're going to get better. So if that means you're practicing four days a week, 
you're probably going to get better. If you're practicing five days a week, you'll get even more better. But it's like, you know, I, I, I guess I don't, I, I don't practice seven days a week. I mean, I guess occasionally I do, you know, just because of maybe timing and whatever I have coming up, you know, if I have something pressing, I might, you know, I'm going to practice. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think, I think just saying like, I'm going to do this the majority of the week. And then, you know, you are building in some rest and and then you figure out how much rest do I really need, you know, to get a max, to get a maximum benefit. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think when you're first starting out on anything, just doing it a little bit most of the time will make you better. And then when you start to like get better and we're talking about elite versions of people like, yeah, you got to get a little bit more complicated. Like athletes are the best example, you know, like what LeBron James needs to get better is different than like what I need to get better at basketball, right? Like it's just, it makes sense. But like, I think we, I mean, this is me saying this, right? About overcomplicating the process, but I think in general, when we think about it, it's it's not like, a, it just needs to be the majority, like you said, in my mind, the majority of what we do should just be at the highest quality we can possibly do it. And if over 50% of it is that way, we'll probably start moving closer to doing that more often. If like 65% of it is that way, that's probably going to happen faster than 51. If 99% of what we do, it'll probably happen faster. So yeah, I completely, obviously, I completely agree because we've talked about this a lot. But um, anyway, I don't know. That's a conversation I'm interested in, but it doesn't have necessarily super clear-cut answers all the time. Yeah. I Yeah, because I think, you know, I think everyone's different in the way that they process that type of work and what, you know, and how their body responds and what they do. But I think the... You know, I think the biggest thing, though, in general, you know, if you want to get better at anything, it's the quality of the work that you're putting in and how mindful you can be. Because it's like if you're if the quality of your practice is very high, then the quality of your performance is going to be high. It's like, you know, yeah, you just got to be there and show up and be ready to work. Yeah, this has been great. Um I am curious if people are interested in checking out things related to trumpet playing, if they're interested in like, you know, taking a lesson or something like that, if they're interested in any of the yoga things you're doing. I saw you did a live stream uh, the other day, I feel like. if I, It could have been like two years ago. I don't know what time is anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, things to do with just checking out your blog too because I know there's a lot, you know, um, a lot that you have written there. Um, how would people find these things and how would people get in touch with you? Okay, so yeah, I do. I actually have a lot going on right now, which is awesome. I'm super pumped about all of it. Um, so I think the best way to find me is actually on Instagram. Um, and I'm at Lamolino J Tromba. And what you'll find up in my bio, uh, you're going to find my link tree. And you'll find... Um, You'll find a link to yoga classes that you can sign up for. You'll find a link to my blog, which is on my website. You'll find a link to my YouTube channel. You'll also find the link I put up a, it is my seven steps to connecting mind, music, and affirmations. And it's kind of like the seven things that I kind of use on a daily basis. 
Um, that's up there. And yeah, because basically the where this is going, um, like I said earlier, I'm definitely, there's going to be more yoga classes being offered uh, come April. Right now I'm doing once a week on Mondays. Um, but yeah, starting in April, I'll be offering two classes a week. Um, and then, yeah, starting in the later spring and the summer, I'm definitely having a yoga trumpet workshop. And cool. probably um, I've also been working on different different yoga programs for different aspects that musicians specifically might need. So those are going to be packages that I think I'm going to start rolling out in the summer also. Yeah, that's great. So if anybody's interested in any of that, getting more information, um, I might even just link your link tree in the, in the thing, and then people can just find it there. Um, if anybody needs to get in touch with me, you can do so at that's not spit.com. Also at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, I'd really appreciate it. If you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share this on social media so other people can find it as well. Joanne, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really appreciate it. It's great to connect with you. Obviously we know each other, but it's great to connect with you in this way. And I can get to know you a little bit more deeply. Definitely. And like I said, I mean, thank you so much for asking me on your show. I've been a, I've been a fan for <laughs> a couple of years now. Um, yeah, I think you're doing a great, you know, you're doing so many great things that I was, I was honored that you asked me to be on it. So that's so nice of you to say, no, it's, it's my pleasure. And, uh, I hope, uh, I hope people got a lot out of this episode and, um, just good conversation. So I appreciate it. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 That's Not Spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today, we're talking about artists and crafters, for artists seek expression and crafters seek perfection. Which are you? How does it show up for you? Do artists have a craft? Do crafters create art? Head on over to the That's Not Spit Facebook or Instagram page and let us know. And remember, shh.